Thank you for listening to Franklin City Church's Sermon Podcast. For more information on Franklin City Church, please check us out at www.franklincitychurch.com. Well, good morning. Go ahead, if you have your Bibles, open up to the book of 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 5. I hope everyone had a happy Thanksgiving and a holiday weekend, and Christmas is now right around the corner, Uh, but we are not starting uh, celebrating it quite yet, all right? Next week will be our first week of Advent, where we're going to have this intentional time of of looking forward to Christmas and the arrival of uh, the birth of Jesus, as well as anticipating his second coming as well, and so we're going to talk at the end of the service a little bit as to what we are going to do as a church uh, to celebrate Advent. Advent to celebrate Christmas. So we'll talk about that at the end. We're not there quite yet. This morning, we are finishing up our series going through the book of 1 Peter. And so we are going to to tackle chapter 5 this morning and conclude our 1 Peter series. Now, all through 1 Peter, I've been talking about how 1 Peter is all about having hope in hardships. And I hope that I have said hope in hardships enough that a few months down the road, when you think back to what 1 Peter is all about, that it will be ingrained in your mind that 1 Peter is all about having hope in hardships. So I've said hope in hardships multiple times in almost all the messages uh, because it is such a prominent theme of the book of 1 Peter. And so the thought was, if I kept saying hope in hardships enough, that it would stick. Although I didn't want to say hope and hardships too many times where you would get annoyed with me and say, you know, think if he says hope and hardships one more time, I'm just, I'm not listening to him the rest of the time, okay? So I did not want to say hope and hardships too many times, but just enough to where it would stick, okay? So hope in hardships, First Peter, okay? Down the road, when you're in hardships and you need hope, you know you're going to go to First Peter, Okay? All right, hope and hardships. I'm only going to say it a couple more times, all right? So all throughout the book of 1 Peter, he's been giving us instruction. Us as Christians, as followers of Jesus, he's been showing us how we can have hope and hardships. That's the last time, I promise. Okay. And now, now that he's given us all this instruction, he's going to emphasize that although we are enduring these hardships as a Christian, we're not doing it in isolation. But when we've been saved, when we've been brought into Christ, we've been adopted into the family of God, we have one another, and God has not left us on our own without any leadership, guidance, or direction. No, Jesus says this in Matthew 9, 36. It said, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Peter's not closing this letter with all this instruction and then just saying, okay, good luck. You're on your own. I might write a couple more letters or at least one more to try to help you out. But, you know, good luck. No, He is now addressing the leaders because Jesus loves the flock and he raises up under shepherds underneath him that can lead and guide and care for his people. And so just like when I'm leaving the house for work, I'll usually give the three boys like some farewell hugs, kisses, and some instruction, but then I'll pull Jackson, my oldest, aside and say, okay, Jackson, you're the oldest, you're the leader of this pack, all right? Take care of your brothers, Uh, uh, be kind and help mommy out, and set an example for your younger brothers. Peter has addressed everyone, and now for a second, he's going to pull the leaders in the church, the elders, he's going to pull them aside and say, okay, listen up. You need to, he needs to address the leaders for a second. 
Now, everyone needs to hear this, not just the elders or pastors, because you need to know how to pray for, encourage, and sometimes lovingly call us out or slap us upside the head if your pastors or leaders are not fulfilling what God has called us to. Also, some of you may not be elders right now, but you also need to hear this because God might be preparing and building and developing you into a future elder at some point. And then everyone needs to hear this as well because you need to be aware of and what we are praying for, that God would raise up future elders and leaders and pastors here at this church as well. Well, let's start with the word elder, okay? This passage talks about elder, and I realize if you've not grown up in church, uh, this might be a weird term. Because outside of the church, elder means someone who is older, or at least someone that is older than you. And to clarify, here we don't call people old, okay? It's just, it's bad form. We don't call people old. We call them well-seasoned, okay? Well-seasoned. So, for example, it is a blessing for me to serve alongside a well-seasoned pastor like Pastor Gary, right? Um, so, that, that's, that's, it just comes out better, all right? Closer to glory would be another acceptable phrase, all right? But we don't call, we don't call people old here, all right? And to clarify, we do desire to be a church that is diverse in all different areas, including age, okay? Because there is something so beautiful about all different age ranges, being able to celebrate and worship Jesus together, and it's, it's beautiful when the church can be the church to one another, and we can learn from one another in different seasons of life, and there is something just so beautiful and healthy when you are at a church that not everyone is just like you, okay? Healthy churches are diverse churches. Okay, so elder, as the Bible uses it, as we are looking at today, it's not referring to age, but it is referring to an office or position in the church. And biblically speaking, elder is synonymous with pastor and overseer. We believe that the Bible uses all three of these terms to describe one office, the same office, elder, pastor, overseer. And I realize that uh, this, this church might speak of elders a little differently than maybe some churches that you've been in the past, so I do want to touch on how Franklin City Church views its elders. Some of you maybe have backgrounds where you've been in churches where you've had uh, a pastor or pastors that are on staff, and then you have elders who volunteer their time. Um, and maybe, maybe some the way the leadership was set up there, the preaching pastor was sort of like the, the president or the CEO, and then the elders were sort of like the, the board of advisors, and maybe the associate pastors were sort of like vice presidents or something like that. And we certainly, we don't want to bash how any other churches do it. The Bible does give some freedom as to how you set up a leadership structure in the church, and there's, there's healthy churches that do it differently than we do, okay? Um, but the nice thing about starting a new church is it gives us a chance to, okay, let's go back to God's word, and, and let's, let's figure out how we are going to do this as a new church. And so the way of church government that we are convinced of being, it, it, we want to be what is most in line with Scripture, and so we see that the Bible used that elder, pastor, and overseer is referring to the same office. So that's what we want to do here as well, that we say elder, pastor, and overseer is all referring to one office. The way we say that our church is governed is this way. We say it is Jesus ruled, Jesus ruled, elder led, and congregationally responsible, 
Okay, Jesus ruled, meaning that we all submit to the authority of Scripture, and we all submit to our chief shepherd, Jesus. But then we believe that God does raise up elders or under-shepherds underneath him that, that are, are put into positions to love and serve and shepherd and care for the body. So we want to be elder-led. And we do want to be led by a plurality of elders. And when we say elders, remember, I'm saying pastors and overseers. I'm saying all the same office. And by plurality, I mean more than just two, okay? So right now we're starting out with Pastor Gary and myself as your two elders. And I've said this before, and I will keep saying it, that we will be a much healthier church once we have more non-Walker elders than Walker elders, okay? We, we realize that, all right? As a church plant, you always can't start in the exact ideal leadership you know, positions. So we are praying for, we are, we are building into guys, and we would love to see God produce more elders here. To have, you led, have a church that is led by a plurality of elders. Okay, so let's look back at what Peter is writing about elders. And one more clarification. This morning, this is not a comprehensive study on what biblical eldership is, okay? What we are taking on this morning is what does 1 Peter 5 say about eldership? If you want to go read more on the qualifications for an elder, go to 1 Timothy 3, go to Titus 1, places like that. But we're going to stay uh, pretty much in 1 Peter 5 this morning. So look with me at 1 Peter 5, verse 1. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory." Okay, so let's look at what, what elders need to be about. First, Peter sa says that he is a fellow elder. Peter says that he is a fellow elder. And what did Jesus ask Peter before he gave him the commission to go feed his sheep and take care of his flock? It's in John 21. Jesus asked him this. He says, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. An elder first loves Jesus. An elder first loves Jesus. Jesus asked Peter three times, do you love me? And I apologize if I'm being Captain Obvious in the room, but unfortunately it needs to be stated that pastors or elders should first and foremost love Jesus. God is gathering a people to himself, and he promises to raise up faithful servant leaders to look after them, but it is so crucial that these leaders passionately love Jesus because the care of pastors for their people will be proportional to their care and love of Christ. This is why Jesus in John 21 continually asked Peter, do you love me? Notice what he doesn't ask him. He doesn't ask him, do you have a degree? Do you have it all together? Do you got it all figured out? Can you deliver a concise sermon that is funny, deep, practical, comforting, and convicting, and get people out on time, right? He doesn't ask him that. He asks them, 
do you love me? Do you love me? God knows when you love Christ, you will love his people. And so pastors and elders need to love Christ. Second, elders are not perfect. Okay, look, Peter just said he's a fellow elder. And we've talked about Peter's past, right? We know Peter denied Jesus three times. We know he lost faith out on the water and started to sink. We know that Peter failed Jesus plenty of times in his life. And so there is great comfort that to be an elder is not to be perfect. God calls elders to be shepherds and servants, not to be saviors. Okay, God calls elders to be shepherds and servants, not to be saviors. And church, this is important. I am not your savior. Pastor Gary is not your savior. If you get all excited about this church and you get all excited about its pastors and you think finally you found what's going to solve your problems, fix your life and save you from yourself. Listen, I'm flattered, but who you're actually looking for is Jesus. And if in your mind you elevate me to the status of Savior, it will crush me with that weight and you will be greatly disappointed and likely move on to go crush another pastor with that weight. <laughs> Jesus is our Savior and I need him, if not more, as you guys do, okay? All right. And so I know as a church, we're only a few months old, but I beg of you, please, in the future... Do not make me or any other pastor or elder or leader here, do not make us your savior. I do count it an honor and a privilege to be able to minister to you, but would you please be gracious with me and allow me to be ministered to by you? Pastors, yes, are called to lead and to shepherd and to guide, but healthy churches also allow their pastors and their pastors' families to be members of the church. And to be able to be ministered to by others and be poured into by others. So church, your pastors are your shepherds and servants, but we are not your saviors. Jesus is. So first, elders are to love Jesus. Second, elders are not your savior. Third, they are to shepherd the flock of God. This word shepherd is what the English word pastor is derived from. So that's where pastor comes from. It comes from the word shepherd. So elders are to be pastoral. They are to be like shepherds, meaning that they are to feed and care for the flock or the people of God. And this is primarily done through teaching and counseling people in God's word and through prayer. And I hope you know that one of the things that we do as your elders and pastors is that we pray for you. We go through our list of, of people and we, we pray over you, we pray for you, we cry out to God on your behalf. And I hope that that would be one of the things that you even like most about this church. Not that we have all these amazing programs or services, but that you would know and take comfort in the fact that your pastors are praying for you specifically by name throughout the week. I hope when someone asks you someday what you like about your church, I hope you can say that the preaching is subpar, the programs are lacking, the jokes are bad, but my pastors know me and are praying for me. Elders as shepherds, they are also to lead people with the word of God. They do this by putting God's word before them and, fe and feeding it to them. I've got nothing of any lasting value to offer you 
except the word of God. And I want anyone a part of or involved in this church to be able to echo Jeremiah, where he says in Jeremiah 15, 16, he says this. He says, your words were found and I ate them and your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. The calling on my life is to get God's word to God's people, and so you better believe that is what we are going to be about here. I lay in bed awake at night, praying and dreaming and thinking of ways to get God's word to you and before you. Okay, so elders are first to love Jesus. They are not your savior. They are to shepherd by getting you God's word and praying for you. And then verse two, they are also to exercise oversight. This passage is a beautiful example of why we say elder, pastor, and overseer is all one office, because this, we see it all here in this passage. The elders are to watch over the flock as overseers. They are to guard against false teachers or anyone that would lead the flock astray, and they are to exercise oversight through making decisions and leading and guiding the direction of the church. Okay, then he offers some warnings to the elders says, not under compulsion, meaning not by force or by obligation. You should never be guilted into or feel obligated to be an elder at a church. If we're up here installing an elder and Pastor Gary's got their arm behind their back twisting it, that is not a good thing, okay? Not by compulsion, not under compulsion. You should not be obligated. You should not be guilted into it. Then look, another warning, not for shameful gain. Now, not meaning that it is wrong to pay an elder, but that the money should not be the motivation, okay? The money should not be the motivation. We hopefully here will have both paid and unpaid elders, depending on the needs of the church at that time and how much responsibility we're giving to each elder and how much time commitment that's going to take. We'll have paid and unpaid elders, but money should never be the motivation for someone wanting to be an elder or a pastor. And then look, a third warning, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Now, here's what domineering means, okay? Wayne Grudem has a good definition of domineering. He says, domineering means forcefully ruling over or subduing, and it can carry the nuance of a harsh or excessive use of authority. That is what domineering is. This is not what Jesus had in mind when he talked about leaders of his people. Listen to Matthew 20, verse 25. But Jesus called to them and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus was all about trying to help his disciples understand that leadership in his kingdom looks way different than leadership in the world. The people that God raises up to lead his people are not to rule or subdue or domineer or do anything by force, but instead they are to serve and lay down their lives for God's people. But unfortunately, power and positions of leadership can lead to corruption. 
And so there is example after example of people who have been in positions of power or authority in churches that have fallen into the temptation to rule instead of to serve. And I came across some interesting research that looked into this as well. And these were, these were researchers without a Christian worldview, okay? But I came across some of these studies and I thought their findings were very interesting. So in the early 1970s, a psychologist named David Kipnis wanted to know if power really does corrupt, okay? That was what he was trying to figure out in this, uh, this uh, research experiment that he was doing. So in a series of experiments, Kipnis had subjects assume the role of manager, okay? He made some people kind of pretend manager. He also then uh, uh, had a group of employees, okay? This was a make-believe situation. We had managers and we had employees. For those of you that are listening online, I'm going strong with the air quotes right now, okay? Uh, but this researcher made up a fake scenario, put some people as managers, some people as employees. Now, some of, in some of the scenarios, the managers just had a little bit of power, like they could only do certain things or boss people around in a certain way. But some of the managers, he gave extreme amounts of power. They were able to, to fire, transfer, promote, uh, divvy up responsibilities. They were given just tons of power. And what this psychologist found was that the managers with more power were more likely to use coercive or strong tactics such as criticizing employees, making demands, and displaying anger. And listen to this, they tended to credit themselves for their employees' success. Anyone ever have a boss like that? Don't answer here. Okay. Um, but the powerful managers were also more likely to keep a psychological distance between themselves and their employees. And Kittness concluded that having power inflates our sense of self and makes us less able to empathize with those lacking power. Interesting, right? What some psychologist in the 70s observed. And then there was another study in 2012, okay? Another researcher named Paul Piff, and his research used the game of Monopoly. You can do this same experiment over the holidays with your family, okay? He had people play Monopoly, but he intentionally rigged the game, okay? So one person would have a huge advantage in all the power, and then he would sit back and just make observations as to what he saw. So one player, he gave a big wad of cash to, gave him, you know, a couple dice and every advantage they could have in the game, and the other players, they would just give him, you know, half the amount of cash. They could just use one die, and so they were at a huge disadvantage. Listen to the observations he made. Within minutes, within minutes, the subjects with more cash and dice, the high-status players, began acting noticeably different. They hogged space at the table. They made less eye contact. They took more liberties, such as moving the low-status players' game piece for them. They also made more noise when they moved their own piece. I don't know what, why that was, but... Every, everyone knew the game was rigged, okay? Everyone knew it was rigged. They knew they were part of an experiment. It was rigged. But within a few minutes, the high-status players started pushing people around and acting like they had real power and status. Some of you have family members like this, which is why you don't play Monopoly with them, right? Okay. Uh, but what was the conclusion of both of these experiments? A little bit of power can corrupt ordinary people and inflate their view of themselves, even when it's just a game. This is why our first test for anyone wanting to be an elder is we're going to play against them in Monopoly. Uh, if, 
If they can win without becoming a power monster, they move on to the next test, okay? So don't just, you can keep that between us for any future uh, person that goes through wondering why they're playing against us in Monopoly. Okay, but in all seriousness, this is one of the many reasons that you should be praying for your leaders. We need your prayers because we, like anyone else, will be tempted to forget our call to shepherd and serve and start to dictate, rule, and domineer. And so Sam Storms wrote a great article on pastors who become bullies or signs that a pastor is domineering. Let me read a few of those to you this morning and then I'll send you guys out the link because I want you, in all honesty, I want you, if you see this in any of our leaders here, including myself, I want you to lovingly call us out on this, okay? So here are some things that Sam Storm says. He says, a pastor domineers whenever he uses the sheer force of his personality to overwhelm others and coerce their submission. A pastor domineers whenever he exploits the natural tendency people have to elevate their spiritual leaders above the average Christian. A pastor domineers by widening the alleged gap between clergy and laity. In other words, he reinforces in them the false belief that he has a degree of access to God, which they don't. A pastor domineers by building into people a greater loyalty to himself than to God. He domineers by teaching that he has a gift that enables him to understand scripture in a way they cannot. He domineers by viewing the people as simply a means to the achieving of his own personal ends. Listen to this. The people exist to serve his vision rather than he and all the people existing to serve the vision of the entire church. He domineers by building a culture of legalism rather than one of grace. People are thus motivated to embrace his authority and bow to his will based on extra biblical rules that supposedly are the criteria for true spirituality. So please, for the sake of our own well-being, would you pray for us and would you lovingly call us out if we or any future leaders here start to allow the position to produce pride instead of what it should be producing, which is humility. Because we know that we are only under shepherds, and we should be looking to the day when the chief shepherd appears. Well, how do we live in a way that guards against this? The same way the rest of the flock is to live as well, by clothing ourselves in humility. So here Peter addresses everyone, not just the elders. Here we go, verse 5, back in 1 Peter. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you. All through 1 Peter, we've been learning about this idea of submission, okay? And how mutual submission is the pattern in life where, where life really works best. You remember how we talked about the, how Christians are called to be, how, called to submit to God. And that's actually when we find true freedom in life. Because we learn that true freedom is not necessarily just being whoever you want to be and doing whatever you want to do. But true freedom is actually found in being who you were created to be and doing what you were created to do. And so Peter has already addressed that we are to be submissive to God. And in that, that is true freedom. And then he's talked about how we are to also submit to our governing authorities. He talked about how Christian servants and slaves were at that time to submit to their masters. 
we learn that husband and wives are to submit to one another with the wife coming alongside the loving leadership of her husband and the husband laying down his life for his bride. And then verse 5, Peter says, likewise, likewise, or in the same way that we've been talking about this idea of submission, be submissive to the elders. Then speaking to all of us, clothe yourselves in humility. Clothe yourselves in humility. This is giving the imagery of all of us as Christians, as followers of Jesus, dressing ourselves with humility. But this word clothe, it's even richer in the original language, okay? It wasn't just the idea of putting on your humility t-shirt, all right? Just grabbing that t-shirt that says humility or it just hasn't been washed in a week or something. Like, it's not the idea of just throwing that on. This word clothe means to put on the apron of a slave. To put on the apron of a slave or to tie the towel of a servant around you. So if you want to lead in God's kingdom, if you want to live in God's community, then you don't step on people trying to get to the top, and you don't use or abuse people trying to get power or them to submit to your control or trying to get their money. No, we put the apron on of a slave. We tie the towel on of a servant. And God doesn't just talk about this. He was about this, all right? My friends in college, we used to always say to one another, don't talk about it, be about it, all right? And Jesus did not just talk about it. He was about it. He did not domineer, but he set an example to follow. So John 13, 4 through 5, speaking of Jesus, he rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. That's what it means to clothe yourselves in humility. Take the towel of a servant, tie it around your waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around it. Clothe yourselves in humility is to tie the servant towel around yourself to put on the slave apron and to serve. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to know that you don't want to be on the team that God is opposing, right? You want to be on the team that he's giving grace to. I want to be on that team. Tell me how to get on that team. Well, it's one thing to just say, go and don't be proud, right? Just try to be better at not being prideful, okay? We'll see who's the, the best at not being prideful, all right? It's not that easy. You might say, thanks a lot, pastor. If people in a made-up, rigged game of Monopoly get prideful, how much more me, you know, in real life, with real situations? I don't have a chance at this. Well, Edmund, Edmund Clowney was a theologian and a pastor who wrote a commentary on this. He said, the humility of those who serve Christ is not merely the absence of pride. Christian humility is realism that recognizes grace. Realism that recognizes grace. Humility springs from one's total reliance on grace. Church, you don't become humble by trying harder not to be proud, okay? You do not become humble by just trying harder not to be proud. It comes from totally relying on and resting in grace. Christian humility is realism that recognizes grace Humility springs 
from one's total reliance on grace. Th that made my top three definitions of humility, okay? My other ones, one comes from C.J. Mahaney's book called Humility, which, by the way, is step two in the eldership process. If you make it past Monopoly, then you have to read C.J. Mahaney's book called Humility, all right? And, and one of his definitions of humility in that book, he says, humility is honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. So saying something similar, right? He's saying when you assess God's holiness and our sinfulness, you realize there's a lot of grace that's got to be there and fill the gap, right? And then my other top three humility quote is C.S. Lewis, who says, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less, okay? But I think Edmund Clowney's definition is helpful in understanding that humble people are not humble because they're the best at getting rid of pride, they are humble people because they are relying on grace. Humility springs from one's total reliance on grace. And this makes sense, right? I mean, this is one of the many reasons we love to proclaim and delight in the gospel. Because it's a gospel of grace. And by grace, I mean God's undeserved favor. That there is nothing that we could do that would make God love us more. There is nothing we could do that would make God love us less. It is all by God's grace, his undeserved favor. When a church proclaims and delights in the gospel, when a church enjoys and rests in grace, pride is suffocated. Pride is suffocated in that place. Pride cannot survive, or at the very least, it cannot thrive where grace is abounding. Preaching grace is like a fire extinguisher putting out the fire of pride that would run rampant through our whole house and family unless the gospel of grace is preached and delighted in and applied. And church, pride is in every room of your heart, whether you realize it or not, and it needs to be put out with the fire extinguisher of grace. Here's one example of pride showing up where you didn't think it was. Look back at 1 Peter 5, verse 7. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Pride can take many different forms. Certainly domineering is one form, but anxiety is another form that pride takes. You see, when you are anxious about something... It's you taking the concerns upon yourself instead of entrusting them to God. When you are anxious, it is signaling to you that you are not totally relying on God and not completely resting in his grace. You have taken the cares of the world and put them on your shoulders. And creator God did not create your shoulders to be able to carry that burden. He says, trust me. He says, delight in me. Hand over your cares and your anxieties to me. Your shoulders are not built to carry those. Mine are. So hand them over. Trust them to me. And the reason we can trust him, the reason we can do this, is the second half of this verse. Because he cares for us. Because he cares for us. God cares for us. He perfectly and infinitely cares for you. I know some of you think that you have maxed out God's grace, like it's a well that you're worried you've gone to too often and it's going to run dry. But church, God is an infinite God with no beginning and no end, and his attributes are the same. God perfectly and infinitely loves and cares for you. James 4, 6 starts out this way with these beautiful five words. 
but he gives more grace. But he gives more grace. If you are tempted to think that you've maxed out God's grace credit card or that his well of grace is going to run dry, you need to memorize, write down, meditate on, and enjoy these five words. But he gives more grace. The well of God's grace does not run dry. When you are anxious, repent of your pride and trust our great God. He is a great God of grace that cares for us. Hand him your anxieties. Your shoulders are not going to be able to handle them, but his are. So trust him and hand them over to him. Look back at 1 Peter 5, verse 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. A reminder here that we do have an enemy. He's a defeated enemy and he's a disarmed enemy, but he's an enemy nonetheless, but we're not going to give him much time this morning, okay? We are to be alert and watchful as opposed to, as we're seeing Christians right now live in culture where there's this, this spiritual drowsiness where followers of Jesus don't know God's word and so we just kind of go along with whatever culture dictates or whatever is popular or being blogged about. Peter says, no, wake up, be alert, be watchful. There is a lot of false teaching out there and there are a lot of temptations for you not to trust God. Then look at verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Sylvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Okay, so we started off describing this as, as me leaving the boys to go to work, right? And I say goodbye to my three boys, give them some hugs, kisses, and some instruction. But then I pull Jackson aside, the leader, right? And I say, hey, listen up, man. You need to set an example for your younger brothers. You need to take care of your brothers. You need to watch after your mom and help your mom. I am lovingly involving him as an under-shepherd in some of my work and in some of my responsibilities. Well, what if Jackson starts to freak out, right? Like, oh no, like dad, I, I, I can't protect the family like you protect the family. I can't guard the family like you guard the family. I can't provide for the family like you provide for the family. Like, what, what happens when uh, we need groceries? Like, I don't know how to get money to even buy groceries. What happens when the mortgage is due? I don't have any way of, of, of getting money to pay for the mortgage. And, and was, was there mention of a lion that's prowling around? Like, can we talk about that a little bit more? Like, you're just going to leave? You're just going to close the letter? You're just going to finish and say good luck and there's like a lion prowling around? Can we talk? a little bit more about that. What if Jackson, my five-year-old, said all of that, all right? I would say, whoa, 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 whoa. Jackson, I'm just going away for a little while, bud. And in all actuality, I've got this, all right? Now, in real life, I'm not saying I've got this. I know God's got this ultimately, but for the sake of the story, okay? Jackson's dad, myself, I can say, I've got this. 
You don't have to worry about all these things. I'm actually the one that's paying for this. I'm actually the one that's going to pay for the mortgage. I'm actually the one that is securing the house. I'm just kind of help letting you be a part of some of my work. And oh yeah, that lion out there, I've already pulled his teeth and he's already declawed, all right? You don't have to worry about him. Because in reality, Jackson's dad has got this, right? And there's no responsibility that Jackson could fail at that would cause the collapse of the household. Church, I love how Peter concludes this book because we could very easily start to freak out as this book is coming to an end because you know what? It sounds nice to say hope and hardships. Okay, that's one more time. And it sounds, it sounds nice. I forgot about that. Okay, it sounds nice to say that we pursue holiness through enduring hardships. All that sounds nice on paper and in sermons, but in real life, that's scary, right? And I don't know if I can do that. I don't know if I can handle that. Are you kidding me? Like, this seems like a lot. This seems like too much for me to bear. And God says, whoa, 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 whoa. I delight in allowing you to take part in my work and care for my people and be a part in some of my responsibilities. But God says, church, I got this. The God of all grace who has called you will himself restore confirm, strengthen, and establish you. you know, you'll notice you're not doing much in that sentence right there, okay? He himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. This is the true grace of God. This is why Peter can say, peace to all who are in Christ. He himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Hardships will come. Don't be surprised when they do, right? Following Jesus will lead to difficulties. Being purified is going to cause some pain. But he gives more grace, and his grace is sufficient. God himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us. Let's pray. God, we, we need you, Lord. We know difficulties, hardships, and pain are all a part of this, this life here on this earth. God, we know that they are only temporary and that the future glory and joy and life with you is not even worth comparing. But God, I ask that you would, that you would confirm, strengthen, establish, and restore us, God. That we would rest in your grace, knowing that it is all, it is all undeserved favor from you. God, I ask that you would continue to raise up leaders here at this church that would be humble, Christ-loving, grace-preaching. I ask that you would guard against any pride or domineering that we might be tempted to take part in. 
And Lord, I ask that you would continue to build this local church, that we would all, as we grow together, walk together, that we would clothe ourselves in humility. So Lord, continue to lead. We thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.